Grace Point. It is great to see you. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met, I would love before we leave today to be able to say hi to you. How many of you are wondering what's in the bag? Anybody? I imagine you doing it in Brad Pitt voice. What's in the bag? How many of you get that joke? Okay, the three of us. Great. So we're just going to keep it for us, and I'm not going to explain it, and they can look it up on the internet later. So um, it is so great to have you here today. So a couple weeks ago, Nathaniel, oh, our youth, it was only because one of them waved at me like, please send us before you start. Um, a couple weeks ago, Nathaniel asked a question during announcements, and he said, how many of you are new to Grace Point in the last four to five months? And almost 90% of the hands in the room went up. Um, so we thought it might be a good time as we jump into the fall to um, take several weeks to talk about who Grace Point is. Who are we? What are our values? What is it that directs us and shapes us and gives us energy to do the work we do in the world? And so we're going to do that. And we're going to look at two values each week. Uh, and then sometime in October, as we get ready to wind the series down, I want to take a week just to imagine the future and think about what are some of the other ways that as a community, we, we can begin to do good work in the world and take the energy we have and uh, make the world a better place. So that's what we're going to be doing in this series. And I want to begin today with uh, two values that are interconnected. The first is that we believe that God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused or believed. Um, God is a mystery to be explored. And the second is that the good news is that you are inherently united with God. Um, and so I want to spend time today exploring those two things. I want to begin with this quote from James Baldwin. If the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we got rid of him or her or it. Let that sink in. If the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we get rid of God. That last part can be a little shocking, uh, but I actually think he's right. Uh, I, I think if our concept of God doesn't make us larger, freer, or more loving, then we're, we just need to let it go and go do something else with our time and energy. And so today, uh, we're going to talk a bit about God. Now, when, we, when you hear the word God, if you're like me, and I bet most of us are, if you hear the word God, something pops into your head. You have an image in your mind. Uh, and there are some pretty popular images of God that often come up. Let me show you a couple. How many of you recognize this? That's yeah, uh, from the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and in this picture, God is an old man with a beard, uh, sort of sitting on a cloud of angel babies or something. I'm not actually sure what he was intending there. Um, but how many of you, that's an image of God you grew up with in the world? An old man with a beard living, and he's, he can't quite reach Adam, so he's just a bit out of reach, and he's a he, right? And so there's this distance between God and Adam. And you may wonder where this came from. Uh, the image of God as an old man with a beard actually came from uh, what we would call Canaanite religion. So there was a God named El, E-L, who actually is the name of God in the Bible for a while until it gets changed. Uh, and this God was uh, above the sky, old man with a beard, right? So that's one way of seeing God. Uh, next. Now, how many of you, if we can just be honest, when you think about God, it is 100% Morgan Freeman. Yes, that is what my God looks like, sounds like. And have you ever, um, have you ever wonder, like, if people walk up to him and, like, I pray to you all the time, <laughs> dear Morgan Freeman God. Right? But that's, a, that's an image for God that uh, came out of cinema, right? But it actually has shaped the way people think about God. Uh, here's another one. If you grew up in the 90s, this one will be familiar. How many of you know what this is from? Alanis Morissette, anybody know the movie? 
dogma, right? And so this was scandalous in the 90s because God was portrayed as, as, as a female, uh, and it was a really kind of a scandalous thing back, back then. So it, the thing is, when you think about the word God, something pops into your head. There's an image, there's a metaphor, there's something that shows up. And our images for God actually end up shaping what we think about God and in turn what we think about ourselves and what we think about the world and what our role and our place is in the world. And so it's really important to ask really good questions about what is the God, who is the God, what is the God we believe in, or if we do, and what does that belief do to us and cause us to do in the world. I want to look at a story today that's from the Hebrew Scriptures, book of Exodus. It's a very old story. And it's a story about a man who has an encounter with the divine. It's Exodus chapter 3. It'll be on the screen. Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. It's also called Sinai. The Lord's messenger, um, this is a, I'm just, can I give you a fun fact? Uh, the phrase the Lord's, and you can use this at parties. Uh, the phrase the Lord's messenger actually is just a way of respecting the, the name of God. So it's actually talking about God. I don't know why you would bring that up at a party. Like if you want to kill the mood as you're standing by the appetizers and you're like, hey, fun fact, the Lord's messenger, and you just keep going. I don't get invited to a lot of parties, as you can tell, because that's what I bring with me when I come. Um, the Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. So it's a bit of a weird story, right? There's a, there's a bush on fire, which is not all that common probably in the desert in this part of the world. But it starts talking to Moses and he just answers right? That seems off. And then the voice from the bush says, okay, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. And then the voice then says to Moses, I know that you know that our, my people, your people are enslaved in Egypt and I've heard their cry and I'm going to liberate them from their oppression. And Moses, I'm choosing you to be the physical presence of liberation. I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and we're going to bring them out in a great act of liberation because this is what God is like. God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the marginalized. God is on the side of the abused. And so God says, Moses, we've got a, we got a job to do, and I want you to collaborate and participate in the liberation of our people. And Moses immediately begins to say, I think you have the wrong person. Have you ever been told that you need to do something and you automatically feel like you're the wrong person? Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah, and Moses is in that spot. And so Moses begins to ask questions and offer objections. And one of the objections uh, happens in verse 13 where Moses essentially says, I don't know what to tell them your name is. And so here's what Moses says. He says to God, if now I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? Fair question, right? Because the, the voice speaking to Moses, he doesn't recognize he doesn't know the name of the deity. And so if I'm going to go to Egypt and tell these people that I'm going to lead them out, they're going to say, on whose authority are you doing this? And he's going to say God's. And they're going to say, okay, what is the God's name? Because all the gods have names. And Moses says, I have no idea what to tell them. And here's God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. It sounds a little like Popeye. You know what I mean? Like, I am who I am. And he's like, eat your spinach and go to Egypt. It's sort of the vibe. I am who I am. 
Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, in Hebrew, this is a really, really interesting phrase. Um, I, I'm going to say it. I'm going to invite you then to say it with me because um, it's, it's just kind of fun. So the, the phrase goes like this. Echa, asher, echa. I got some really good phlegm on that one. Echer, asha, asher, echa. All right, so this, uh, let's say this together. Let's try the first word. Uh, it, it's just echa. Yeah, if you sound a little sneezy, you're, you're on target. Uh, yeah. And then the next word is a share. Okay, let's say the whole sentence together. A share, a Congratulations, you just spoke in unknown tongues at church today. You can tell all of your friends. And if you don't know that joke, you, you, you're better off. Um, and so uh, this is what God says to Moses. This is the phrase he gives Moses. I am who I am. Or actually, it's more like I will be who I will be. I'm a word nerd. I was an English major in college, and this is written in the imperfect tense. So there's perfect tense, which shows a completed action, and there's imperfect tense, which means there's something ongoing. It's not finished. And the way God chooses to speak to Moses is in this, in this story, the God character speaks in the imperfect tense, which means it's not complete. It's not finished. It's more of an I will be. It's an ongoing sort of situation. So Moses asks, what's your name? And God basically answers, existence. Does that clear anything up? Does that give you any insight? Moses is like, who are you? Existence. I, I'm the verb to be. I exist. And so then, I'm imagining in the story that Moses is sort of scratching his head and the story goes on. God says, uh, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. Uh, this is my name forever. This is how generations will remember me. So he says, tell the Israelites, you want a name? Tell them it's the Lord. And in the text, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And anytime you see that in the Bible, it is God's sort of personal name. And it comes out to four consonants in the Hebrew language. And it's uh, Y-H-W-H or yod heh vah in Hebrew. So uh, in Hebrew, originally there were no vowels. It was a guttural language, no vowels. So when you look at this with no vowels, we would say Yahweh. Uh, but how would you pronounce that? I can see that little hamster just doing this right now because it's unpronounceable, right? There's no real way to say this. And the closest you get, some of the ancient rabbis say, is that when you speak the name of God, it's, it's sort of like you're breathing. It's like, yod, hey, va, hey, right? It's, it's more like a breathing in and out than it is actually saying something, which is really, really profound because what's the first thing you do when you enter this world? Take a breath. What is the last thing you do before you leave this world? Right? You release that breath. There's something going on that somehow whatever the word God is pointing, whatever the word Yahweh is pointing to, it's something that has to do with all of existence. So when God says to Moses, or Moses says to God, I need to know your name so I can tell them who you are, <laughs> the God character in the story responds in two names, existence and breathing. How many of you, it's completely clear now? So Moses is going to go, and he's going to tell them, um, existence and breath have sent me to you, and I want you to risk your lives and follow me to liberation. Right? It, Moses is asking for clarification, but the clarification he's given actually takes him deeper into something he doesn't understand. It doesn't clear it up. It doesn't make it uh, easily, easily portable. It's actually an invitation into something else. 
this is what we mean by mystery. And I think one of the problems has been over the course of uh, religious development, one of the things we've done is because we're so uncomfortable with the idea of mystery, we're so idea, uh, uncomfortable with the idea of a God who can't be contained in boxes, uh, that we've tried to do it. We've tried to create systematic theologies, we've tried to create doctrines, we've tried to create all this stuff to sort of contain the word God, so that when we say the word God, we all know what we're talking about, and it's something that we can study and understand, and if somebody has a question about God, we've got the answer. Right? You ever been in that situation where uh, somebody has a question and you've been trained that you're supposed to have the answer to the question? Everything about God, all you need to know is in this little binder. Right? And there's something, I think, uh, impossible about that. So I want to show you what I brought in the bag. And I had to get special permission for this to leave my house because there is a nine-year-old who is really worried that I'm not going to take good care of it. Um, so this, uh, so back in the summer, uh, back in the summer, I got an email from the Tennessee Titans, uh, and not, not all of them, but it was like a corporate email, and they said, uh, would you like to come watch the Titans practice, and there's going to be free lunch, and you, you get a plus one. Now, I don't know how I got the email. I didn't know anybody over there. I'm assuming it went to the wrong person, so I said yes quickly. Uh, so that they would not find out the error of their ways. And so uh, one Thursday morning over the summer, uh, Cohen and I came down to their practice facility, and we got to watch a practice, and we got to eat some really good barbecue for free. And then at the end, the players came over, some of them came over, and they, would, they were signing jerseys and towels, and we brought a football. And so it was a really, really neat thing. Uh, and he saw so many players that he likes, and that he, there was actually one player, uh, I'm, we're WVU fans, uh, except for what happened yesterday, if you saw the score. And um, we got to see one of the former WVU players there, and that was really cool. It was just a really fun experience. And so we left there immediately. As soon as we left the practice facility, we drove to like one of those stores like Michael's or whatever, and we bought this container to, to house the, the ball. Because we realized that, and I was trying to tell him this, like the, if we take this home and play with it, if we kick it and throw it and catch it and run with it, um, it's going to mess up the signatures. And if we touch it a lot, the oils from our hands are going to mess it up. And this is going to be something you'll have forever and you can give to your kids and they can give to their, you know, the sacred family autographed football that we're going to pass down from one generation to the next. And so when I asked to bring it here today, he was like, you do not let anybody touch it. You do not let anybody throw it. I was like, I think if they touch it, if they throw it, they're going to be touching it. So that kind of knocks that out. So please do not touch this. It is on loan. But we, we brought it home, and, and here's the thing. When we brought this home, it sits in his room. And occasionally we'll bring it out to show somebody, or he'll have a friend over, and they'll go to his room, and they'll see it, and they think it's so cool. But it just sits in there, and it sits in this case, and it's something to be observed. Right? It, it's not something that to be played with. It's not something to engage. It's just something to look at and to maybe in some ways appreciate, to study. Um, and, and I think that in some ways what religion has become or can become is that it can become that case doctrine and dogma and systematic theologies, they become that case for the word God. And we put God in there, and God is something to be studied, God is something to be believed in, God is something to be explained, God is something to be argued in some contexts, right? But the reality is it's not something to be engaged. It's not something to play with. It's not something to collaborate with. It's not something to do something in, through, and with in the world. It's just merely meant to be observed. And I think part of what we've done with religion is we've taken God and we've essentially put God in a museum or in a glass case and we've said that we, we know all the things, all the bullet points and, and all the questions have been answered and now we're just going to try not to mess it up and get all of our finger oils on it, right? And I think that's what we've done with God. We've, we've created systems that try to contain God. 
Because deep down, we are deeply uncomfortable with mystery. We are deeply afraid of it. Richard Rohr says this, mystery is not something you can't know. Mystery is endlessly knowable. Mystery is not something you can't know. Mystery is endlessly knowable. I think when we hear the word mystery, we think that, that it's essentially, like if God's a mystery, it's akin to trying to nail jello to the wall. You know what I mean? Like you're not saying anything. When you say God's mystery, you're just saying, ooh, God. Right? There's no content, has no meaning. And that's not at all. What we mean when we say God is mystery is that we want to live with the understanding that however we see and understand God right now, that is not the full and final word on what this reality means. There is something larger behind it. Right? The word God, and it is just a word, the word God is a marker for a reality that we cannot fully comprehend or understand. It just is bigger than our categories. And it's bigger than the word God. Right? We get all antsy about the word God. And the word God is just a symbol. It does not capture the reality. And so it should make sense to us then when we look back at our ancient ancestors in all sorts of ways, right? So when we look back at them scientifically, when we look back at them anthropologically, when we look back at what they understood about health and, and hygiene and all that stuff, when we look back at our ancestors, we should not be surprised that we look at some of the things they said and did and we no longer think it's valid, right? We've grown. And I think this is also true for our spiritual ancestors. There are moments when we come to texts in the Bible that we have been trained to just assume are all right and good. Texts about genocide, texts about what this God character commands people to do. And we look at that and we, we, we can't question it. We can't, no, no, no. We should look at the Bible and definitely see that our ancestors were on a continuum. That even throughout the course of the pages of the Bible, they changed their beliefs and opinions and interactions with God stunningly at times over the course of the span of history. And we should also understand that we're going to change our opinions, concepts, and ideas of God as well. How many of you have ever been warned about the slippery slope? Like you start asking questions, you start pulling at that thread, it is a slippery slope. And you know what? They were right. What they didn't tell you is how fun it would be. It's not a slippery slope, it's a slip and slide. Right? And, and the more you go, the more thrilling it is, and the more you realize that the more you know, the more, less you know. And the more you think you understand, the more you figure out you, you don't get it. So when you talk about God as a mystery, we're not saying, ooh, God. What we're saying is that this reality that the word God points to, it's like a, a sign. The, the word God doesn't capture that. It's bigger, it's more expansive, and it's uncontrollable, and it's wild. And it's far beyond where we can even begin to get our hands around it. So we shouldn't be really, really frustrated with people who just don't get it. Right? Um, so when people say, I don't believe in God. Like, what's the response there? Okay, no big deal. Let's talk about where things are going. Right? Because I, I believe that the word God points beyond itself to a reality that is pulling us toward more love, more compassion, and more goodness. And when people say they don't believe in God, they're often talking about never the Morgan Freeman God. We like that God. But 
the old man with the beard, right? That, that's the God they have problems with. Now, when, when our systems of religion uh, became afraid of God as a mystery, we started creating systems of access to God. So we wanted to make sure that people got to God the way we wanted them to get to God. So, so it would be valid, right? Because it's only valid if they do it our way. And one of these systems of access to God came about uh, and it talked about our problem. And in this system of access, the biggest problem you and I have is the problem that we are separated from God. How many of you heard this before? You are totally depraved. You're capable of no goodness. You are deserving of eternal punishment. You are just the worst. Anybody ever been told that before? I'll never forget being at a youth camp one summer, and it was not even a kid from our church, but the service was over. Um, they talked about good news. It didn't actually sound very good by the time he got done with it, but he told us it was good. And there's a kid sitting on the front row about 11, and he's just sobbing and shaking. Nobody's around him from his group. And so one of our volunteers went over and said, hey, what's going on? And he's like, I just realized tonight that I am worthless, that I am no good, that there's nothing good in me, and I'm capable of nothing good. And I was eavesdropping on the conversation. My friend said, how old are you? He said, I'm 11. He said, no, you're okay. You're okay. God loves you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're okay. And it it just stops me in my tracks to realize that there are still systems of religion that are trying to tell people that God is so angry with you, that God is so frustrated with you, that you are such an epic disappointment to God, that God can't even be near you. I remember being told as a kid that unless you're praying to, uh, to confess a sin, God doesn't hear you if you're not uh, saved. I mean, have you ever heard that before? Like, God just doesn't have time for you. And so when you have this problem of separation, you have to deal with a solution. And the solution to the problem of separation in this world, you is sacrifice, right? In order for God to love you and forgive you, you've got to have sacrifice. Imagine this. Imagine if one of your kids broke curfew. And they came home like 10 minutes late, and they said, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm so sorry I broke curfew. What would you say to them? Well, I hear you, but now there's an issue between us. You broke curfew. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out back and get one of the goats, which we keep for this occasion. <laughs> I want you to go over to the altar. I want you to kill that goat, and I want you to pour the blood all over yourself. Now, that sounds silly, but in the Christian framework, some of what we created is this. God can't love you and forgive you unless he kills somebody. And God has to kill Jesus, and you must be completely doused in, like, prom night doused. Some of you will get that. Some of you won't. Doused in the blood of Jesus, right? That that's the only thing that gets you okay with God. And the solution, it's the solution that gets you salvation. That's the end result. You get salvation. You're separated from God. God kills something to make you okay. And if you believe it, trust it, accept it, pray it, whatever, you're okay with God. By the way, growing up, I was always told in sermons that the word grace means unmerited favor. And you hear about unmerited favor, which seems like something you can't earn, right? It's just yours. But then you ask the question, what do I have to do to have access to grace? Oh, you got to pray the right prayer. You gotta go to the right church, you gotta read the right Holy Scripture, you, you gotta sign up for the right thing, you have to do the right thing, right? That no longer sounds like grace, that sounds like another set of hoops. It sounds like another set of, if you want this, then you have to do that. So grace in this system really isn't free, it really isn't a gift, it's just something you get from believing the right thing. And so at the end you can go, well look, I believe the right thing, aren't I great, right? I think there's a better way of thinking about it. I think there's a completely different way to approach this issue. We, we don't have to be afraid of God's mystery. 
And if we approach God in that way, it leads us to a completely different framework. It begins not with separation, but with estrangement. Now, the word estrangement is, is a bit different. Estrangement means uh, that there is a sense of separation or disconnection. It doesn't mean it's real. There's a sense of it. Uh, and anybody in here ever been in a crowded room and felt completely alone? Yeah, it's a thing, right? You're in a crowded room, completely alone. Well, you're not alone. There are people all around you. It's a sense. But we live with a sense of estrangement. We live with a sense of disconnection from God. We live with a, live with a sense of being cut off. And, and one of the foundational, primal stories of the Bible, the story of um, Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, when the first people sin and they discover that they're naked, or well, I guess we would say naked, most of us probably in the South, they realize they're all naked and they're ashamed and they hide. What happens next? Does God send a messenger to say, you're horrible, terrible, depraved people, I cannot come near, near you until you make the right sacrifice? In that story, they hide and the God character comes and walks in the garden and the God character calls out, where are you? It's time for our evening stroll. In that story, we don't see separation. We see people who feel separated. So just to be clear, you've never been separated from God. It is an impossibility. You cannot be separate from God. There's this great line put on Paul's lips in Acts where he says, in God we live, move, and exist. God is like air all around us. If, if we're the fish, God is the water. It's impossible to be separated from God, but we live with a sense of separation. And that sense of separation can cause us to do and believe all sorts of things about ourselves and other people and cause us to jump through all sorts of different hoops of, that are ultimately destructive to us. What's the solution to estrangement? It's awareness. You know the story of Moses? We read at the beginning when Moses sees the bushes on fire and he comes over and he's told to take off his shoes. The rabbis ask all sorts of questions like, how, is it possible that the bush was always burning and it was in this moment that Moses stopped? Is it possible that the ground had always been holy and what we're being told is not God has made the ground holy now, you can take off your shoes. What if the story is actually the ground has always been holy and Moses is just becoming aware of the holiness of everything, every inch of creation is holy. There's something powerful in the story. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has this poem, and I can't quote it verbatim, but she says something like, every bush is aflame with God. And those who see take off their shoes, but those who don't sit around it and pluck blackberries. Right? Moses is brought into a new level of awareness, and that new level of awareness causes Moses to have a different experience. And, and the, the response then is not salvation, because when we think of salvation, we think of going to heaven when you die, which is not what the Bible talks about at all. The response here is to return, to return. Now, the word return in biblical language is the word repent. Uh, you ever heard anybody say that word out loud? Have they ever seemed happy? Have you ever met a person telling other people to repent? And you're like, they have such a kind disposition. I bet they're great. Would love to spend hours in conversation with them. Like, have you ever had that experience? Usually when people are talking about repent, they are just ticked off. Uh, and, and they just want you to know that you need to repent. It has nothing to do with what they need to do. It's all about what you need to do. But actually, the word repent just means to return. It means you're going one way, and you realize this is not the way. This is not the way that leads to wholeness. This is not the way that leads to life. This is not the way that leads to human flourishing. This leads us somewhere we don't want to go. So let's pull a U-turn, and let's go a different direction. 
Um, so the other night I was driving and I don't see well at night and I wait to tell people this till they're in the car with me at night. And it's more of a plea for help. Like, I don't know, I can't see much, so I need your help. Uh, and so I was trying to go somewhere the other night and I realized I got in a turn lane a light before I should have. And so I needed to get on down. Traffic was crazy. So I turned into this place. I went around and did a U-turn and came back to a stoplight. And then it turned green and I turned out into the road. And then I realized that there was a concrete barrier between the side of the road I shouldn't be on and should be on. And I'm on the wrong side of the concrete barrier. And I I drive down a little way and then there are cars coming. So I pull another U-turn and turn back into the place I did the original U-turn, made another U-turn and finally came out onto the road. It was very stressful. And I think, though, it says something about the journey, that it's all not straight lines, right? It's continual moments of going, oh, I thought that this was the way, and now I'm realizing that I maybe need to turn around and go a different way. And I thought that was it. Maybe now I need to make another U-turn and go a different way. The spiritual life is about continually being open to the need to return, to to turn around, to U-turn, and to go in a different direction. And so what's being called of, of us, asked of us, is not repent, which means believe what I believe or you're gonna be in trouble. It's to endlessly be open to the mystery, the reality, whatever word you, I do not care what you call that word, that reality. You can call it God, I don't care. There is a reality that's pulling everything forward and you can see it throughout human history. And I know right now in the world and specifically in this country, it seems like we're going backwards in a whole lot of ways. But if you look at the scope of human history, it's all going somewhere better. And you and I have been called, invited, challenged, whatever language you want. We have been invited to be a part of this process of helping things go the right way way toward human flourishing, toward wholeness, toward compassion, toward goodness, toward everybody having enough in the world, toward everybody having a seat at the table. That's our invitation. God is not something to be observed and debated. It's not a dogma. When we talk about God, we're talking about a reality that's inviting everything to move forward. And then as people who want to be near, connected to, participate with, collaborate with this reality, we're being invited to help take things in that direction which is why some of the most faithful people I've ever met in my life have been atheists. Because they have seen the need for us as human beings to take responsibility for the world and to move it in a better direction. It's pretty fascinating that when when God invites Moses, God says, I want to do this, but it is not going to happen outside of flesh and blood. It is not going to happen outside of a human being incarnating God to the world. I think that's what we've been invited to do. So when we talk about good news at Grace Point, here's the good news. We mean you have never been separated from God. Never, ever, ever. And that this reality called God has always loved you and always been there and always called you beloved. And there's never been a moment where God has had to be coaxed, convinced, sacrificed to, begged, pleaded with. God has never needed any of that to love you or to find you lovable. That right now, as you are, and as you have been, and as you will be, you are completely immersed and embraced in the love of God. And there's nothing you have to do to get it. It is yours. And when we raise the awareness in ourselves, when we allow ourselves to see that this is true, that there are no more hoops to jump through, there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to defend, that we are loved, 
transformation becomes really possible. And not just transformation for us, but transformation in the larger global family, right? It enables us to do hard things, to ask hard questions about how our lives and our consumption are affecting the lives of everybody around us and the very planet we live on and depend on. It allows us to begin to really think about what is our role, because God has always been looking for partners. It didn't, wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just Jesus. God has always been looking for partners to engage in the work of healing and restoring everything. Are you with me? And there's this great text in Romans um, where the writer Paul Listen, listen to what he says. I'm convinced, and there's some dated language in here for some of us, but just, just let it just be for a minute. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get that statement? That nothing you could do and nothing you could be that nothing you could think, nothing you could fail to do, no belief you have or no belief you don't have, can separate you from the very essence of who you are, which is the beloved child of God. Nothing. That's who you are. James Baldwin says, the concept of God has any use. It is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. And if God can't do that, it's time we got rid of God. I think he's right. Now, here's the good news. I do think there is a way of understanding the reality of the word God points to that will absolutely make us freer, larger, and more loving. In the 21st century, we're still talking about this. I would love to go back in time and show our ancestors the iPhone. Can you imagine going back to our Neanderthal past and being like, look, can you imagine going back to the Middle Ages and saying, look at what we have. Service here is terrible, but look. <laughs> Can you imagine going back to, I was thinking like 1981 and showing people this. They would have, back to the future hadn't happened yet. We didn't know about hoverboards. It was in the future, right? We've come a long way in so many ways, and we still have a very long way to go. And you and I are being invited into the journey, into the work, into the process, into collaboration, and into participation with this reality called God that is ultimately a mystery. And we're going to change our thoughts and perspectives and beliefs, and that's not heretical, that is absolutely essential. And when we do that journey, when you're in that journey, you know what I think happens? I think the question, can God make us larger, freer, and more loving? I think the answer is clearly yes. She can. So let's end like this, uh, if we can. Stand with me as you're able. Um, And we're going to put that text from Romans 8 back on the screen. Um, And and I want to invite you as you're reading, I want to read this together sort of as our closing moment of prayer, and then we're going to sing. As you're reading this, uh, just if there are other categories that you need to just pop in in your head, uh, maybe, maybe you don't have much, you know, you're not really worried about angels separating you from the love of God, but there's something else, right? Maybe allow yourself just the moment as you're reading that to think that and just speak that in your own mind and heart to give yourself the permission to know that nothing will separate you from that love. So let's read this together if we can. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody said...